0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, Later on today. This morning we're continuing our sermon series looking at uh, this question of what if Jesus had never been born? Maybe another way to ask that is, uh, the, asking the question, is Christianity good for the world? And I want to begin this morning by asking a slightly different question, and that is about God's creation. What would you say is the pinnacle of God's creation? Of all the creatures that God has spoken into existence, which holds the place of highest value in his heart? We're not just creatures, but think of all of the majestic things that God has created, mountains, oceans, canyons, go beyond the earth, go out into outer space, think of stars, galaxies, nebula, planets, more, and and on and on. Of all of these things, what is the crown jewel of God's creation? And if we read the Bible, we see that the pinnacle of God's creation is, of course, humanity. God has created humanity uniquely different than the rest of creation. There's something special about every man, every woman, every child that you come across. Every single person that you interact with ever has been created in God's image. One of my favorite quotes comes from a pastor. His name's Kent Hughes. He's describing the wonder of humanity's creation Specifically in the image of God. He writes this. This is the high point toward which God's creativity is directed. So consider this though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light past countless yellow orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and sweep down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up the protostars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being for a tiny baby girl or a boy is the apex of god's creation but the greatest wonder of all is that the child is created in the image of god the imago dei the child once was not now as a created soul he or she is eternal he or she will exist forever when the stars of the universe fade away that soul shall still live. The doctrine of the image of God is one of the most important truths in the Christian faith because it, it explains, helps us to understand the infinite worth that God places on every single soul. And that's part of the reason for the story of Christmas. But that's not all, that's not the only thing when it comes to the image of God. The image of God is also one of the motivations for Christmas. It's also the the source of of countless societal transformations, good, that has taken place since the birth of Christ. And so as we consider this morning, asking this question, what if Jesus had never been born, this morning we're going to focus on the, the weight, the significance of being created in God's image. What does it mean to be created in God's image? How does it lead us to Christmas, the significance of the image of God with Christmas? And then finally, understanding how, how humanity, society has forever changed by an understanding of the image of God. So that's going to be our focus this morning. As we jump into God's word, I ask that you would pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we consider your word, you would speak to your people. We marvel at the fact that we alone of all creation have been created uniquely in your image. We marvel at the fact that humanity alone of all creation has been created for communion with you, fellowship with you. And God, we ask for your spirit to come and speak to us, to open our eyes so that we would see even more clearly your great love for your people, your great commitment to save, how we might respond with worship and gladness. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Confident that you hear us. Amen. Well, maybe you feel uncomfortable with the idea of describing humanity as the pinnacle of God's creation. Maybe you feel uncomfortable with being described yourself as the pinnacle of God's creation. You may not feel that valuable. Maybe you're intimately aware of all the ways you've fallen short of God's purposes and God's plans and the notion of being special. It's really hard for you to fathom. It seems like it's it's too good to be true. And so what I want us to do as we begin this morning is just by asking the question, what is the image of God? What does it mean to be created in God's image? Is humanity really all that special in God's eyes? The answer to this question is actually found in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 uh, through the end of the chapter and then into chapter 2. Tell us the story of God's creative work. The Bible begins by describing God creating the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. And then we're told that He takes the heavens and earth, and over the course of six days, He shapes and molds, forms and fills this creation. And then we get to Genesis, or we get to the end on day six, we see that God creates humanity. Notice specifically in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28, that God creates humanity with a task and an identity. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These two verses, three verses, tell us that God creates us with a task as well as with a unique identity. First, notice the task that God gives to humanity in verse 26. God creates humanity to have dominion. Verse 28 further clarifies what exactly this means. It says that we are called to fill the earth, that we are called to subdue the earth. God's original purpose for creating humanity is this task, to fill the earth and to rule over the earth as a part of God's original plan. That's the task. God creates humanity to fill and to rule. But what is the identity? That's found in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. People will oftentimes define the image of God with a certain attribute that we have in common with God. So someone suggests that the image of God means it's our ability to think or our ability to reason. Other, root it, root, other people root it in, in a special relationship, the capacity to have relationships with God, just like God. So others will, will root it in, in our ability to make choices, right or wrong cho- choices in morality, but none of those things, as, as, as right as they might be of, of things we have in common with God, none of those are rooted in the text, When we consider Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28, we see what specifically the image of God is. The image of God, according to verse 27, is simply just a part of what it means to be human. If you are a human, then you are created in the image of God. Humanity doesn't have to do anything in order to be in God's image. Now, humanity might neglect the task that God has entrusted to us. We can choose whether or not to live out this charge to rule and to fill as a part of God's plan, but we cannot stop being in God's image. In other words, the image of God is a free gift. It's not describing something that we do. It is something that is true of you. And it is true of every single person that you come across, period. Being created in the image of God sets humanity apart from the rest of creation. Of course, that might not explain exactly what God's purpose is in creating us in His image. And that's thankfully described when we consider the rest of the Bible and how it describes images. And likeness as we consider the rest of the story of the Bible. We look at the rest of the Bible and we get a general sense for what an image does. Images are meant to point us to a particular person or a particular being, they are meant to portray something about him or her to onlookers. So if you're reading through the book of Daniel and you get to Daniel chapters two and three and you read about this giant image. That King Nebuchadnezzar creates, it's pretty clear what the purpose of that image is. It's to point people to Nebuchadnezzar, and it's making a declaration about his greatness. It portrays his greatness. The same thing is true of pagan idols and images throughout the Old Testament. They point to a pagan god, and they portray something about that pagan god. And it's in that context that we see something amazing about humanity being created in God's image. God made you in his image, not primarily in relation to your ability to think or your ability to reason, your ability to have relationships, your ability to do good, but simply as a signpost. Being created in the image of God means that you are a signpost, to the rest of creation. And what's more, when we look at the story of the Bible, when sin enters into the world, when Adam and Eve reject God's rule and reign over them, the image of God doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. It's a free gift in the very beginning, and it remains a free gift even now. So after sin enters into the world, we can look at the rest of the Bible and we read that the image of God still remains. You get to Genesis chapter 9 and we read this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. After the fall, the image of God remains. You get to the New Testament. We see that men and women are still created in the image and likeness of God. We read this in James. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. Today, every person that you meet, from the youngest person to the oldest, from the wisest to the most foolish, from the holiest to the most morally bankrupt, Every single person that you meet is created in the image of God. God created them so that we might reflect Him. We might point to Him, portray Him, the something about this God of creation. Now, that's not to say that the image of God isn't veiled. It's not to say that the, the mirror is slightly opaque. It's hard to see through. It's cloudy. It's cloudy. It's not to say that the reflection is accurate, but it's still there. Even if the mirror is cloudy, humanity is created in the image of God, and that remains true to this day. And it's, found, it's in the, human, the image of God that hum, humans wor, humanity's worth and dignity is found. The image of God is the source of all human worth, the source of all human dignity. That's what we see in those two verses that we just read, in Genesis chapter 9 and in James chapter 3. Humanity has value because we are created in the image of God. Why does God command that people be held accountable for murder? Well, it's because humanity is created in His image. They are his image bearers. They are made to portray him. And so to attack his image bearer is to actually attack God himself. Why is it that James condemns the cursing of people made in the likeness of God? It's because they are made in God's image. And to curse the image of God is to, in a way, curse God himself. Why is it that Christians should care about preserving the lives of others? Why is it that Christians should care about pursuing a quality of life for others? Why is it that Christians should care about the rights of other people, whether they're Christians or not? Why do Christians care about the downtrodden, about the oppressed? Why do Christians care about the freedoms of other people? It's because humanity, every single person that you come into contact with, whether they're Christian or not, is created in the image of God, and therefore they have inestimable worth in God's eyes and therefore in our eyes as well. It's that inestimable worth in God's eyes that leads to the Christmas story. It is a part of God's motivation for the Christmas story. When you read the story of the Bible, we see that God bestows humanity with an unbelievably free gift. He creates them uniquely, set apart from the rest of his creation in his image. Unlike the rest of creation, humanity is meant to be this signpost pointing creation, people, one another to God. They're meant to reflect to God. They're meant to point to him, to portray him. And astonishingly, as you're reading the story of the Bible, you see that this free gift isn't good enough for the original image bearers. Rather than reflecting God, pointing to God, portraying God, they instead decide to replace him. Being made in God's image wasn't enough. They wanted to be God's themselves. And so they led all the rest of creation in rebellion against God in the garden, breaking God's good creation, and God would have had every right to start from scratch, to just start over, He would have had every right to remove the good gift of being his image bearers from humanity. After all, they didn't do a good job of reflecting him, did they? God would have had every right to let them drift, helpless, in their rebellion, cursed, separated from God, and yet that's not the story of the Bible. Far from abandoning his creation, far from abandoning his image bearers, God takes on flesh, becomes flesh like us, becomes one of us. That's the astonishing message of Christmas, as John describes it in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's the Christmas story. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, in spite of humanity's rebellion, God chose to send His Son to take on flesh, to become one of us, as a part of His plan to save us from our rebellion. This past week, during our family devotions, we were talking about this fact in, in the Christmas story, the fact that Jesus takes on flesh, and he becomes one of us. And that's, that's an idea that's it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. One of our kids was actually asking how it was possible that Jesus could remain fully God while also being fully human, not just appearing to be human while remaining fully God. And maybe you, like our kids, wrestle with this truth. After all, how, how could God remain God and yet become human? Why would he want to do that? Hebrews chapter 2 gives us powerful insight into the reality of Christmas. It says this, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't just appear to be human. He wasn't part human. He didn't have a human body while remaining fully divine on the inside. No, he remains fully God, and yet at the same time, he became like his brothers in every respect, an image bearer who because of his faithfulness would be able to save other image bearers who had gone astray. It is hard to fathom, it's hard to fully grasp, but it's surely not hard to be in awe of the unfathomable lengths to which God went at Christmas. That God so valued his image bearers that he took on flesh to become one of them in order to save them. The story of Christmas reveals more. For while we are all created in the image of God, reflecting him to varying degrees of accuracy at the coming of Jesus, at long last, we have someone who reflects and portrays their God perfectly and faithfully. That's what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This Jesus is the one who makes the Father known. And through his faithful obedience where each of us has failed, Jesus has made a way for image bearers to receive grace upon grace to return to the Father in spite of our rebellion. Christmas reminds us of the Father's commitment to his image bearers, the infinite worth that he places on our lives to the point where he doesn't give up on his image bearers, but instead makes a way to rescue them from their brokenness by becoming one of them. And it's because of this reality, the incarnation, the image of God, that, that the way our world views human worth has changed forever. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that the Christmas story forever transforms our understanding of compassion. Before Christmas, compassion was seen as a weakness. Compassion was seen as something that you did not want to be known for. And yet, because Jesus came, compassion is now an inherent good in our culture. Remember these words that I read two weeks ago from Tom Holland, not Spider-Man. Just want to remind you of that. An atheist historian, Tom Holland. The more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, so the more alien I increasingly found it. The values of Leonidas of Sparta, whose people had practiced a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics and trained their young to kill inferior peoples by night were nothing that I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all that my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had ceased to hold Christian values. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should properly be organized and the principles that it should hold were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. In other words, God's commitment to compassion has forever transformed the world. And as we've seen this morning, that idea is rooted in the image of God. That people are worthy of care because they've been created in God's image. That's true of Christians and non-Christians alike. We value people because people have been created in God's image. And God values people As well. This was utterly foreign to the majority of the world before the advent of Christianity. And so, in the balance of our time this morning, I just want to look at three areas, three microcosms of how the image of God forever transformed the world by looking at human worth. I want to look at children, women, and slavery. Let's start with the way that the advent of Christianity changed the world's understanding of the value of the young. Before Christianity, the value of human life was quite low, especially for those who contributed very little to society, such as children. Tom Holland describes the awful reality of life before Jesus changed the world. He says this, Across the Roman world, wailing at the sides of roads or on garbage dumps, babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might be dropped down drains there to perish in the hundreds. Few had ever questioned this practice. Indeed, there were cities who, by ancient law, had made it a positive virtue. You see, in this world, the idea of human worth, the image of God, this idea that that your worth is a free gift from God, did not exist. Worth was rooted in utilitarianism. What value or contribution you can provide to society Worth was rooted in autonomy, hedonism. What makes me feel happy? What is it that I want? And an infant, of course, provides no real utility to society. If anything, it is a drain on society. And many times, families did not want an extra child, or they didn't want a child that had developmental challenges or was the wrong gender. And so in that world, these children were discarded. It's horrific to even say. And it's in that horrible world, the notion that worth is rooted in the image of God was transformational. The church was horrified by this practice. They intervened. The example of Macrina of Cappadocia, the older sister of a church leader named Gregory of Nyssa, she typified the commitment of the church in that day. Listen to this. When famine held Cappadocia in its grip, and, quote, flesh clung to the bones of the poor like cobwebs, end quote. And then Macrina would make a tour of the refuge ships. Those infant girls she rescued, she would take home and raise as her own. Macrina, taking up the the slight form of a starving baby in her arms, could know for sure that she was doing God's work. Saving infants because of their inherent worth. Now, that's not to say that Christianity had invented the notion of the image of God, nor the un- idea of unqualified human worth. As one would expect, this had been a part of Judaism for millennia. But as the church spread aclo- across the globe, the idea of human worth and dignity finally takes root. Christianity condemned the exposure of infants as murder, and did all they could to take care of those who had been abandoned. Justin Martyr was a leader of the church in the second century, and he sums up the position of the church. He writes this, we have been taught that it is wicked to expose newborn children, for we would then be murderers. It wasn't just children that were spared the the terror of pagan culture by the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus was also incredibly good for women. And this might surprise us because the common refrain today of Christianity is that it is oppressive of women, it is regressive in its teachings. And in this, the value that Jesus places on women departs from the traditional view of first century Judaism that saw women as second-class citizens. Instead, Jesus saw women as an essential part of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Women were the first witnesses to the resurrection They were the first ones to share the gospel. Women walked and talked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. In the early church, women served an important role. Just look at Romans chapter 16 for a list of of all of the incredible things that women did in the early church. Philippians chapter 4, Paul refers to two women as co-workers in the gospel. Women prophesied as we see in Acts 2 and Acts 21. Women served as models of compassion in Acts chapter 9. Women raised up children in the faith as we see in Acts chapter 16. Women helped start churches in Acts chapter 16 and on and on and on. A crosswinds is a complementarian church and that means that we see different roles for men and women in the church and yet We would also say that if the church is neglecting the gifts of half of its members, it will languish on the vine and is missing out on God's plan and purpose for his church. This value of participation of women in the church and in its mission stands in contrast with the culture of the first century. Consider the words of the historian Rodney Stark. says this, Women in early early Christian communities were considerably better off than their pagan and even Jewish counterparts. Greek women lived in semi-seclusion, the upper classes more than others, but all Greek women had a very circumscribed existence. In privileged families, the women were denied access to the front rooms of the house, Neither Greek or Roman women had any significant say in who they married or when. Typically, they married very young, often before puberty, to a far older man. Both Roman and Greek husbands had absolute power to put an unwanted infant to death or to force a a wife to abort their child, but Roman husbands were not allowed to kill their wives. The implication there, of course, is that Greek husbands sometimes were. How different is that than the the picture we have in the early church of women? It's not surprising, but in a culture that is ruled by utilitarianism, what can you do for me? The abandonment of infants was far more common with daughters than it was with sons. In fact, it was virtually unheard of for Roman families to consist of more than one daughter. One historian writes, Girls in particular were liable to be winnowed ruthlessly. Those who were rescued from the wayside would invariably be raised as slaves. Brothels were full of women who as infants had been abandoned by their parents, so much so so that it had long provided novelists with a staple of their fiction. You see, before the transformation of the world from Jesus, fully half of the world's population faced a grim future. If they survived, it would be to live out life as a slave slave or a prostitute, and if they were spared that, they had virtually no rights in the home. It's important to point out that this isn't just an ancient thing either. As the gospel has spread across the globe, we've seen this transformational calling throughout the centuries. The lives of women across the globe throughout the ages have been improved by the introduction of the gospel. Consider, for example, India. Prior to Christian influence in India, widows were voluntarily or involuntarily burned on their husband's funeral pyres, implying that Hindus believed it was a good woman who followed her husband into death. Furthermore, infanticide, particularly for girls, was common in India prior to the great missionary William Carey. Carey and other Christians detested seeing these little ones being tossed into the sea. These century-old practices were finally stopped only in the early 19th century and only through missionary agitation to British authorities. India also had child widows, young girls who grew up to be temple prostitutes. In the 20th century, Amy Carmichael, a missionary, fought this practice by weaning many girls out of the situation and into the Christian community. In the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon told of a Hindu woman who said to a missionary, "'Surely your Bible was written by a woman.'" "'Why?' he asked." Because it says so many kind things for women, our pundits never refer to us in anything but reproach. Of course, some may object that was then, and this is now. And they would argue that the Bible doesn't go far enough in liberating women. But feminist Louise Perry, in her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, argues against the cultural climate of the day that the so-called empowering of women in our hookup culture is not at all empowering for women or for men. One author summarizes her work this way. The consequences are catastrophic on a societal level as well. Feminist Louise Perry has worked with victims of rape and abuse. She has seen the dark side of radical feminism and sexual liberation. Young women are told that casual sex is empowering. They are losers in a hookup culture, which delivers loveless sex, humiliating abuse, and miserable abandonment. While there are individual exceptions, on average women and children are safer within the married family than anywhere else. Monogamous, faithful, lifelong marriage is good for men, women, children, and all of society. Christianity, far from being regressive and oppressive, has actually transformed the world's view of women for the better because of the incalculable worth of both men and women created in the image of God. I want us to just consider one final area. I'm not going to be able to give it the time that it deserves, and that's how Christianity transformed the world's view of slavery. Before the spread of Christianity throughout the world, slavery was a cultural assumption. It was a part of society. And there are some who claim that Christianity advocates for slavery as seen by examples in the Old Testament, like Abraham owns slaves in the Old Testament, among others. There are Old Testament regulations for slavery. In the New Testament, there's not this large abolition movement. And we don't have time to go into a full treatment of that, so I'll just say that, that's true. Those things exist, and yet these various points never condone slavery, just acknowledge the reality of it and the brokenness of it. One of the most powerful and culturally subversive letters in the, in the Bible is the New Testament book of Philemon. It's a one-page letter that Paul writes to a slave-owning man named Philemon. In the letter, Paul not so subtly urges Philemon to consider the implications of his faith, specifically concerning how he, as a slave owner, could possibly own another person, a man named Onesimus. We actually preached on Philemon in two sermons back in January 2018, if you are interested in more of how that argument works out in Paul's letter. The reality of the history of the church is that though they might be slower than we would maybe like, they were instrumental in ending legalized slavery throughout the world and continue today to end other forms of slavery. The brother of Macrina that we looked at earlier, Gregory of Nyssa, a church leader in the 300s, was a staunch abolitionist. Notice, this. Gregory was moved by the existence of slavery not just to condemn the extremes of wealth and poverty, but to define the institution itself as unpartable offense against God. Human nature, he preached, had been constituted by its creator as something free. As such, it was literally priceless. John Chrysostom, one of the best preachers in early church history, says something similar in a different part of the Roman Empire in the same generation. In the 3rd century, John Chrysostom, who served as Archbishop of Constantinople, was famous for his fearless denunciation of political leaders who abused their power. He told the wealthy to buy slaves, teach them a trade, and then set them free, saying that when Christ came, he annulled slavery. That his preaching did not lead to widespread abolition does not discount the implication of the gospel understood by these men. Abolition of slavery took root Not in the 1700s, in the 1800s, like we oftentimes think, but first in the ninth century. One historian says this, As the ninth century dawned, Bishop Agobard of Lyons thundered, All men are brothers, all invoke one same father, God, the slave and the master, the poor man and the rich man, the ignorant and the learned, the weak and the strong. None has been raised above the other. There is no slave or free, but in all things and always there is only Christ." Soon, no one doubted that slavery in itself was against divine law. One author points out that by the 11th century, slavery had effectively ended in the lands of Christianity. And after slavery reappeared with the emergence of the transatlantic slave trade in the 1700s, 1800s, it was an understanding of the image of God that again led to abolition movements. Tom Holland writes, large numbers of them ranging from Baptists to Anglicans had been graced with good news, evangelion. To be an evangelical was to understand that the law of God was the law not only of justice but of love. No one who had felt the chains of sin fall away could possibly doubt that slavery was ever detestable in the sight of God. William Wilberforce, the champion of abolition in British Parliament in the late 18th century, did so out of Christian convictions. He suffered abuse and labored for decades to free British slaves. And he received word on his deathbed that his life work had at long last been accomplished. That those who had been created in the image of God were at long last free. We could go on and on and on. But the point is clear. The spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth forever changed the way the world thought of human value, thought of human worth, human dignity. And that's nowhere more clearly seen than in the reality of Christmas. At Christmas, we see the unbelievable love that God has for humanity, for his image bearers, and that's the truth that I hope sinks deeply into our hearts this morning. Christianity declares the great worth of every person who has been created in his image. Every single person that you have ever met or will ever meet, from the youngest to the oldest, from the kindest to the most wicked, all of them have been created in the image of God. And they have value in God's eyes. So much value that he was willing to come to earth to take on flesh that he might save his image bearers. That's the story of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of the gospel. that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved. That there is hope for those who have turned against you, that have rejected you, that have rebelled against you, because you took on flesh, became one of us, lived a faithful, perfect life, were obedient to the point of death, and have been exalted in victory. God, I ask that we would be a people who reflect you with how we treat others, that we would live out the idea of human worth and value and dignity that is found in the Bible for your glory and for the good of those who are around us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.